Thank you, William. Appreciate that uh, greatly. Go ahead and open your Bibles to uh, Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, just uh, have that portion of Scripture ready. We'll be looking at it in a moment. I hope you did uh, pick up a copy of the sermon notes as you uh, came in as well today. Uh, as we uh, continue our sermon series, Excelling in Our Love for One Another. And in this series, uh, we've been examining uh, the one another of the passages that you find in the New Testament epistles that teach us how to love one another in the family of God. And we've come to the book of Hebrews. And in the book of Hebrews, you find two uh, one another passages, both dealing with the subject of encouragement, encouraging uh, one another. We looked at that first passage uh, last Sunday in uh, Hebrews 3. Uh, And the key verse uh, being uh, verse 13, which reads, But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The second one another passage in the book of Hebrews is in chapter 10. The key verses being, Uh, Verses 24 and 25, which read, Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, as we have done uh, throughout this study, we will examine... uh, this second one another passage in the book of Hebrews in the uh, larger context. And so we're going to go back uh, to the beginning of Hebrews chapter 10. Now first, let's remind ourselves of a very important observation we made uh, about the book of Hebrews last Sunday. The book was written to Hebrew Christians. Hebrew Christians who had started very, very well in their Christian faith, but now they were in danger of turning away from following Christ uh, due to increased persecution. They were struggling, I mean greatly struggling, with the consequences of following Christ in a world that was hostile to Christianity. Uh, These folks had been beaten up and beaten up bad by life's trials and adversities. They were tired. They were frightened. They were intimidated. They had taken their eyes off of Jesus, and they were overwhelmed by their circumstances. And their temptation was to retreat from following Christ and return to their old Judaism. But the writer encourages them. It's the purpose of the book of Hebrews, to encourage them to stay true to Christ, regardless the cost of following Christ, to press on to maturity. And he does this by exalting the supremacy of Christ and his eternal salvation. The writer knew that when any person truly sees and fixes their eyes on the majesty, glory, and infinite worth of Christ, 
then for that person to live for Christ becomes their greatest joy. And to die for Christ would be their greatest honor. Every single deficiency in the Christian life is rooted in a deficient knowledge of Jesus. And that's why this writer just holds up the supremacy of Christ in the eyes of these folks that were so struggling uh, to encourage them to hang in there and stay true. So, I hope you have your Bibles open to Hebrews chapter 10. And as we uh, come to chapter 10, it's important for you to see that the first 18 verses of the chapter, the first 18 verses are literally a review of the key truths that the writer has emphasized in the previous nine chapters. And the reason for the review is that in verses 19 through 25, the writer comes to the climax of the book, where he begins to apply the truths that he has shared to the reader's lives. So as you see in your sermon notes, verses 1 through 10 are all about the supremacy of Christ's sacrifice. And what the writer does, he uh, first reminds us of, notice letter A, the inadequacy of the animal sacrifices. The inadequacy of the animal sacrifices. So look with me in your Bibles at Hebrews 10 verses 1 through 4. Let's read these together. It says, For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices, referring to the animal sacrifices, which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, the animal sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now, why are the animal sacrifices in the Old Covenant inadequate? Well, the writer in these four verses gives us three reasons, which you see in those first three bullet points in your sermon notes. And the first reason that the animal sacrifices were inadequate is that they were merely a shadow A shadow, not the substance. They were a shadow, not the substance, not the real deal. Therefore, their only true value was to point to the coming Jesus, the coming Messiah, the true Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. You know, I can illustrate this very simply for you. Um, uh, Kathy and I got married at the uh, end of the summer. And uh, that summer before we got married, we were uh, apart from one another. Uh, she was in her uh, hometown, Hagerstown, Maryland, uh, busily getting ready for the, uh, for the wedding, making all those preparations. And I was uh, working at a Christian camp up in uh, New York State. And uh, my two most precious possessions were the pictures that I had of Kathy uh, while we were apart, and then several tapes that she recorded 
uh, for me of her singing. And I can't tell you how often I looked at those pictures, listened to her singing in those tapes, uh, looking forward uh, to August 10th uh, when we would say our vows uh, before one another and uh, be married. But folks, you would think I would be very, very strange that uh, once I left the camp and uh, went to Hagerstown, if uh, I just continued to focus on those pictures and those tapes and neglected what the real deal. Once I got back to Hagerstown, once we were married, I had the real deal that I could interact with, relate to. And, and that's what's being said here. Everything in the Old Covenant, all those animal sacrifices, they weren't the real deal. They were just a shadow. They were pointing to the coming Messiah and what He would accomplish for us. Look at the second reason the animal sacrifices were inadequate. They required repetition, but provided no remission from sin. They required repetition, but provided no remission from sin. The latter part of verse 1 says how the sacrifices were offered year after year, but they could never make perfect those who drew near to God. It is obvious with the old covenant animal sacrifices that the people never felt that the price of sin had been completely paid off. If they had, they would not have had to repeat the sacrifices year after year after year after year. After all, you don't keep making monthly installments on your mortgage when your home has been completely paid off. So the animal sacrifices were inadequate because they weren't the real deal. They were just a shadow, not the substance. They were just simply pointing to Jesus they required repetition, but they actually provided no real remission from sin. And look at the third reason the writer says the animal sacrifices were inadequate. They maintained a consciousness of sins, but not cleansing from sin. They maintained a consciousness of sins, but not cleansing from sin. Uh, the point was summed up very well in verse 3. But in those sacrifices, referring to the animal sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. In other words, instead of the animal sacrifices removing the stain of guilt on their conscience, they only serve to remind the people of their guilt. Far from cleansing sin, the animal sacrifices only called attention to the people's sin and the fact that their sin barred them from God's presence. Every single animal sacrifice ever made cried out for the need of a permanent solution to the problem of man's guilt, to the problem of man's sin. And so you have the writer's conclusion in verse 4. For it is what? Impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You know, it is estimated that uh, in the Old Testament temple in Jerusalem, that uh, during the week of Passover, 
as many as 300,000 lambs were slain. Uh, we're told that the slaughter was so great that the blood of those sacrificed lambs actually ran out of the temple grounds through specifically prepared channels and took that blood into the brook Kidron, which literally became a river of blood during the Passover week. But even a river of blood from animal sacrifices could not take away the sins of the people and bring them into God's presence. But what could not be accomplished by hundreds of thousands of animal sacrifices was accomplished by the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Amen? And that brings us to letter B there in your sermon notes, the adequacy of Christ sacrifice. My, by, by the way, before I move on, you might say, well, how were they converted in the Old Testament? Well, again, they were converted the same way we are through faith in Christ, through faith in the Messiah. But they put their faith in the promise of the coming Messiah. Again, the animal sacrifices were just to point them to that coming Messiah, to the promise that He would come and finally remit uh, all sin, where today we look back to the finished work of Christ. They looked forward in faith. We look back in, in faith. So uh, we want to look at the adequacy of Christ's sacrifice. So look with me at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 10. Therefore, when He, that's Jesus, referring to Jesus, when He, Jesus, come, comes into the world, He says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired. But a body you have prepared for me. Now pause right there. Jesus is speaking to his father. And he says, you have not desired an animal sacrifice from me. Why? Because I am the sacrifice. The body you prepared for me will now be the offering for sin of mankind. I think of Philippians chapter 2. It says, talks about Jesus, who although... He was equal with God. He did not consider equality with God a thing to selfishly grasp. But he emptied himself of all of his rights, everything but love, taking upon himself the form of a what? Bondservant and being made in the likeness of man, taking on human flesh and being in appearance as a man. He what? He humbled himself to the point of what? Death. And death where? On a cross as he died in your place paying off your sin debt, taking the judgment of God that you deserve, as he who knew no sin became sin on your behalf, that now you might be made the righteousness of God in him. Uh, look at verse 6. Then it says, in whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Again, pause. Verse 6 is simply another affirmation of the total inadequacy of the animal sacrifices to remove man's guilt and forgive his sin. God says, it's never going to happen through the animal sacrifices. But in verses 7 through 10, praise God, we discover the one sacrifice that is adequate to remove all guilt, to forgive all sin, and grant continual access to God's presence. 
Verse 7, then I, again, Jesus said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. After saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Jesus said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. In other words, he accomplished all in that first covenant to inaugurate what? The new covenant, the New Testament. And then it says, by this will, verse 10, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. No need for repetition. And when it says, by this will we have been sanctified, what's it talking about? It's about Jesus' will. It's about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. When facing the cross, he said what? If there's any way this can pass from me, if there's any way I don't have to drink this cup, that'd be, but what? Nevertheless, what? Not my will, but thine be done. And as Jesus voluntarily offered his life as a sacrifice for our sins, we then become sanctified once and for all through that offering. So look at the next two bullet points that sort of sum up these verses. In stark contrast to the animal sacrifices, and here's a key, who all died involuntarily, Jesus died voluntarily as a sacrifice for the sins of mankind in submission to His Father's will. And herein lies the power of Christ's sacrifice. And then that second bullet point, because Christ submitted His will to His Father to the point of death, we are sanctified or set apart for God's intended purpose. This is something the law could never do. The law could set us apart to be shunned or stoned, but the law could never empower us to fulfill God's purpose. See, going back to the picture illustration I gave earlier about uh, Kathy and I, the animal sacrifices were a picture of what could be. Their purpose was to create an ache in the human heart for Jesus. To create a longing for the coming of Christ, the Lamb of God again, who would take away the sins of the world. So look at that second major point now. We've seen the supremacy of Christ's sacrifice. Look now at the supremacy of Christ's priesthood in contrast to the Old Testament priest. Look at Hebrews 10, verses 11 through 14. Read them with me in your Bibles. Every priest, referring to the Old Testament priest, stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he, Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Notice the contrast between the Old Testament priest and the priesthood of Jesus. The Old Testament priest offered repeated sacrifices. Jesus offered what? 
one sacrifice. The Old Testament priest stood daily, indicating that their work was what? Never-ending. Jesus is what? Seated, indicating his work is what? Finished. And what did he say as he died on Calvary's cross? It is what? Finished. Tell testi. Debt paid in full. As Brother David used to often say, he didn't say, I'm finished. He said, it is finished. The work that he came to do to save man from his sin by being that sacrifice on Calvary's cross. The Old Testament priests labored on earth. Jesus is where? In the heavenly tabernacle, seated at God's right hand in power and glory. The Old Testament priests offered sacrifices that could never take away sins. Jesus' one sacrifice perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Now look at the third truth. Not only the supremacy of Christ's sacrifice, not only the supremacy of Christ's priesthood, but look at the supremacy of the new covenant. And again... When we talk about New Covenant or the New Testament, the easiest way to look at that is the last will and testament of Jesus Christ. It's what Jesus willed or bequeathed to all who will put their faith in Him and in Him alone. Not trusting their works to gain God's favor, but putting their confidence in what Christ accomplished for them through that one offering that he made. So the new covenant, covenant again, are just the promises that he, he wills, he bequeathed, those guarantees that he gives us for all that put their faith in him. And the first one, first one is empowerment. Empowerment. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 16. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws upon their heart, and upon their mind I will write them. Now look at that note there underneath that verse. Having God's law inscribed in our hearts by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit as opposed to an eternal standard written on stone is the primary difference between the Old and New Covenant. The New Covenant alone provides both the motivation and the power to walk with God. When a person puts their faith in Jesus Christ, a miracle takes place, a new birth. Someone comes into existence that did not exist before. I'm given a new heart, a heart that loves God. A heart that hungers and thirsts after God. A heart that wants Him. That desires Him. And so I'm given that empowerment through a changed heart that's energized by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's something that was never done in the old covenant system. All you had there again was eternal rules and regulations. And you were met with, and you were met with constant failure which reminded you of your guilt and the stain of sin. But in the new covenant, there's a change on the inside. Your want to has been changed. Your appetites, your desires have been changed. And then notice the second wonderful promise of the new covenant, forgiveness. And that's the reason He can give us the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, where that Holy Spirit can give us that new heart that loves and thirsts after God. It's, it's built on that foundation of forgiveness. Look at verses 17 and 18. And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. 
In other words, I am never going to allow their sin to put a wedge between me and them. And as I've, you've heard me share many times before, it doesn't mean that God won't know discipline or chasten. It simply means this. That because He has forgiven you, listen now, you're accepted by God as His beloved. You're His child now. And nothing can alter that relationship. There's nothing that you could ever do that would stop God from loving you. And because God does love you, and because He is that loving Father, and this is Father's Day, He's going to chasten you. He's going to discipline you when He sees you um, expressing attitudes, character, conduct that He knows will eventually be harmful to you, destructive to you, to your loved ones, and those around you. But listen to me now. If you're a child of God, nothing can ever change His disposition of love toward you. Nothing. He, I've, I've said this before from this pulpit. I thank God for this every day. I was saved September 20th. 1970, I have never gotten over this. To this day, it moves me emotionally at the very core of my being. That because of what Jesus did for me, and the fact that I am now God's child, God the Father loves me, Andy Merritt, as much as he loves his son Jesus. And he is just as committed to protect Andy Merritt provide for Andy Merritt so that I might finish the work that he's given me on earth to do as he was committed to Jesus. But I also have to say again, unlike Jesus, I am a sinner saved by grace. And that's where the discipline and the chastening comes in. And because God does love me and nothing can alter that love, he will be faithful to discipline. But not to punish me is very important now. Not to punish me because Jesus took my punishment. Punishment is out of the picture now for a child of God. But he disciplines because he's thinking of what? Your future. He wants his best for you. And he knows his best for you is for you to walk with Jesus in intimacy. So we have his forgiveness. And their sins and their lawless deeds I'll remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there's what? No longer any offering for sin. It's done. Listen, beloved, listen. The reality of experiencing God's forgiveness is not on the basis of what we have done, but by what Christ has done. And because of that, we are now delivered from serving God out of a feeling of failure in attempt to measure up. It delivers me from trying to keep a legalistic checklist of external rules in an attempt to earn God's favor. We now serve God motivated by pure love with a heart filled with gratitude 
for his free gift of forgiveness and for coming recipients of his unmerited grace, which is ours not on the basis of works we have done, but on the basis of Christ's finished work on the cross. So look at the next statement in your notes. Sin no longer is an obstacle to an everlasting covenant relationship with God. The people of the new covenant enjoy unhindered access to God's presence. See, even my sin and my failure can't keep me out of God's presence. No matter of fact, that's when I need to get into God's presence, when I have sinned and failed, to know His cleansing, to know returning to my love, to know that empowerment that only He uh, can give. So we've seen the supremacy of Christ's sacrifice, the supremacy of Christ's priesthood, and the supremacy of the new covenant. Now look at the fourth major point. And this is where he begins to apply this truth. What this all means for the believer. What this all means for the believer. I mean, when the rubber meets the road, let's make this practical. And, and you'll see there in your notes what the, uh, what the writer of Hebrew talks about is he talks about what we have, and then he talks about, in light of what we have, what we're to do, and then he tells us how we're to do it. Now look, at twice in verses 19 through 21, you will see the phrase, since we have. Well, what do we have now as a result of what Christ did for us? We have two most precious things. And the first one there that you see, letter A, what we have is confidence. I now have confidence to live continually, as we just mentioned, in God's presence. Look at verses 19 through 20 in your Bible. Therefore, brethren, therefore, notice, looking back to what he just said about the supremacy of Christ's sacrifice, the supremacy of his priesthood, the supremacy of the new covenant. He says, therefore, brethren, since we have confidence that can be translated boldness it can be translated freedom to speak to enter the holy place how by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is what his flesh when it was torn on Calvary's cross for our sins folks let me tell you something. It's, it's, it's the greatest trick of the devil, and don't fall victim to it. You know, we, we have this idea that Satan tempts, and he tempts to get us to uh, fall into sin, to live inconsistent with who we are in Christ. And, of course, that is very, very true. But that's not the ultimate goal, the devil's ultimate goal. The devil's ultimate goal when he tempts you is not just to get you to fail, not to just get you to sin, but listen now, but in the failure for you to lose confidence that God loves you. For you to lose confidence that you can go into God's presence freely through the blood of Jesus Christ. And once you lose that confidence, what's going to happen is you're going to fear God. You're going to, you're, going to, you're going to retreat from the only place where you can know forgiveness and deliverance and empowerment. 
That's his greatest trick. And that's why we have to come back. There's nothing, nothing that can ever sever you, uproot you from God's love. That's the one guarantee. That's the one certainty that you have that will always be there for you. Look at the second thing we have that relates to that. We have a high priest who gives mercy when we sin and grace in our trials. That's why when I do sin, when I do fail, the first thing I want to do is take advantage of the blood of Christ. What it accomplished for me, get in God's presence to know the mercy of my high priest and know his grace and empowerment to live in a righteous manner. And there's no other place that you're going to find that than in his presence. That he's made available to you 24-7. Now in verses 22 through 24, three times you see the phrase, let us. Which tells us what we are to do. And he mentions three things. In light of the fact that we have confidence to go into God's presence. And we have confidence to go there to a high priest, Jesus who will give us mercy in our sin, in our failure, and grace in our trials, well, this is then what we're to do. And he says, notice the first bullet point, let us draw near. Goodness gracious, if you got the confidence, if you got that high priest who's ready to give you mercy, to give you grace, then draw near. And draw near with a sincere heart in the full assurance of faith. Believing that God is. And he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Faith in the supremacy of Christ's sacrifice, in the supremacy of his priesthood, in the supremacy of the new covenant. Faith in the fact that he has cleansed you, he has forgiven you. And you do have the boldness, the confidence, and the freedom through faith to go in. Having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Look at verse 23 of the second thing we're to do. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. So he says, what are you to do now that you've got this confidence and you've got this great high priest? You're to draw near with a sincere heart into his presence. And you're to hold fast to your hope, referring to the truths of God, the promises of God, without wavering. Think what this meant to these Hebrew believers. They were in trouble. They, they were in danger of wavering, of retreating. And he's saying, no, no. Yeah, you're going through difficult times. Go into God's presence. Get to your high priest. Hold on to his promises of eternal life, even if you died for him. Instant death is what? Instant glorification. As Paul said, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What greater honor could a believer have than to lay down his life in service for his Lord? And then look at, the, at verse 24. The third thing we were to do. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. There's our one another verse. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Notice, in those three verses, you have what? Faith, hope, love. Because we have confidence to go in God's presence. Because we have this high priest. We have faith to come, to draw near. 
We have hope. And remember in the Bible, hope is not wish, wishing. Hope is what? Confident assurance that what God has said is true. So what he's saying to these Hebrews, yeah, you're in tough time. And your, situ- your, your, your situation looks like it's an impossibility. But on this side, you've got the impossibility of God to break his promise. So he says, hold on to this. Hold on to that. And then, love. Love God. Love one another. You see, the reason it's so important to see the connection of verses 1 through 18 to these verses is, until you see the truth of verses 1 through 18, you can't love others. See, what frees us to love is when I realize I'm loved unconditionally by God. And as I become secure in that love, then I'm willing to make myself vulnerable to others. Because I know no matter how others respond to me, I'll never lose the Father's love. I'll always have His presence. I'll always have His empowerment. I'll always have His encouragement and hope. See, it's, it's the, the knowledge of what Christ has done for me, becoming secure in that love that enables me to love others. And by the way, circle that word consider. In verse 24, let us consider. It's a very, very powerful word in the Greek text. It means to fix your eyes on something or, or, to, or, to, or to think about it carefully, uh, to give attention to it, to, compliment, compliment, to uh, contemplate this. So what he's saying is, This is what the Christian life is all about. He says, I've saved you so that you can take your eyes off of yourself and place your eyes on the welfare of others, the welfare of the lost, bringing them to Jesus, the welfare of those in the church family. You know, we talk about the majors in life and the minors in life. He's saying, here it is. This is the major for a Christian. It's to fix your eyes, give your attention, think about What can I do for others? How can I build them up in their faith? How can I encourage them? That's the whole heart of this passage. And then look at letter C as we close. How are we to do it? How are we to do it? First part of verse 25, he says, Not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some. And then the second part of that verse, But encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near, referring to the coming of Jesus. So the last, that last line in your notes, there are two keys, and here they are. This is how we do it. This is how we stimulate one another into love and good deeds. Availability and encouragement. Availability and encouragement. Now, don't zone on out me yet. We've said, all, we've said everything that we've said just for me in these last two or three minutes to emphasize this. See, availability. Listen now. God never intended for any believer to isolate themselves, but to be a participating member in the body of Christ. We are to view the church not as a congregation, but as a family. We saw in an earlier message, Romans 12, 10, but be devoted to one another like a loving family. Ephesians 4, 16, the whole body is fitted together perfectly as each part, that's you, As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts, that's the rest of us, grow. 
so that the whole body is healthy and growing, full of love. See, we are to share, the Bible says, our experiences with one another. Proverbs 27, verse 17, is iron sharpens iron. So a friend sharpens a friend. We're to share our homes with one another. Again, the emphasis there is although we may gather in corporate worship, there's nothing more important in the Christian experience than small group life. Getting in a small group where you can build relationships for encouragement and accountability. And if you're not in a small group, you're missing out on God's best for you. And I would encourage you, get involved in a Sunday school class. Get involved in one of the small groups. Get involved in a Bible study that's going to be more than just study, but where you can build relationships. That is a critical part of the Christian life. And then, not only our experiences, are, but we're to share our problems. Galatians 6.2, share each other's troubles and problems. Bottom line, here it is, bottom line. We cannot encourage one another at arm's length. We must be available and approachable to one another. Therefore, we are not what? To forsake our assembling together as sadly as the habit of some. But then not only availability, we're to make ourselves available for what one purpose? Encouragement. Encouragement. And encouragement means to come alongside someone. Listen now. It means to come alongside someone to put courage in them. To inspire that person in their spirit. Again, to give them hope. See, there are members in God's family today, like the Hebrew Christians yesterday, who are beaten up by life's adversities. They are bruised by anxiety, hurt, disillusionment, and failure. There are others in the church family that are defeated by sin. We are to be there for them. And if you are in that situation, listen to me now, if you're in that situation, you need to be open. You need to be open about the struggle that you're having. And seek help. Seek that encouragement. You know, it's interesting that the basic ministry of the Holy Spirit, we're told He's, what, the helper that God sent. Which, that word literally means to come alongside and to encourage us in our walk in Christ. That's the basic ministry of the Holy Spirit, to come alongside of us and encourage us in our walk with Christ. So think about this. Therefore, the closest, the closest we can get to the work of the Holy Spirit is when we encourage one another. That's when you're the closest with Jesus. That's when you're closest with the Holy Spirit, by becoming people helpers. Now, let me suggest this as I close. My time's gone. Would you right now, and I pray everyone will do this. Let's, let's make this. Pri- Would you just write down at the bottom of your sermon notes the name of one person that you will reach out this week to, to encourage? It may be someone who's really, really struggling, and you just need to reach out to them. Let them know you love them, you care, you're praying. It may be someone who's meant a lot to you. And you just want to express appreciation for their Christian walk. Or how much they've invested in your life. But I'm asking you, would you write down on your paper at least one person where you can begin to practice this. And keep in mind, it doesn't stop with just that one person. We're to encourage one another. Did you notice what it said? 
in Hebrews 3, day after what? Day after day. It's not just on Sunday. We should be doing this continually as we consider, as we contemplate one another, as we focus on, on one another. And so I pray God will give us the grace here at the Edgewood family to grow in the ministry of encouragement, stimulating one another to love and good deeds, coming alongside one another to inspire courage, to inspire hope when a person has been beaten down, discouraged, disillusioned. Because again, I don't believe we're ever any more closer to Jesus or diving into the work of the Holy Spirit than when we become people helpers and when we encourage one another. Father, um, give us the grace to live what we've heard. Um, Lord, we realize to live what we've heard means the need for our eyes to be open to see the supremacy of Christ, to see His majesty, to see His glory, to see His infinite worth and value. Because in seeing Him, as we mentioned earlier, we suddenly realize there's no greater joy than to live for Him, and there'd be no greater honor than to die for Him. And it's in coming to that place of total surrender in light of who you are and what you've done for us that we suddenly become free of self, of selfishness, to love you and to love others, to encourage others. So, Lord, we thank you that uh, you created the church family. You created the church family because you never intended any believer to live in isolation, that we desperately need one another, that there will be times when I become disillusioned. There will be times when the pastor becomes defeated. We'll need the encouragement of the flock. There will be times where every single person seated here will become beaten and bruised uh, by life's uh, battles and trials and adversities. And uh, so, Lord, uh, uh, teach us to love one another. Uh, teach us to encourage one another. And we'll trust you for it. For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen.